We'll be reading Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1 through verse 16. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Cast out the scoffer, and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the faithless. The lazy man says, there is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. The mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich, will surely come to poverty. You may be seated. The topics, the themes of these verses today are instruction, moral instruction, wealth, and power. And wealth and power are sort of grouped together since wealth is a sort of power. When you, you have wealth, you, you have a, a persuasive power to get people to do what you want. In particular, in particular, that's explained for us at the end when it talks about the idea of the borrower serving the lender and the rich serving, sorry, the poor serving the rich, that, that's typically the way that works is called employment. Why do you sell your time? You sell your time because you have less money than you'd like to have and you trade it to serve somebody who has money that they can give to you. And so that's the way that that works. So those are the categories here, instruction, wealth, and power. And so the tying together of all of these is partly about how do you get wealth and power through morality? And then also, if you have wealth and power, how should you use it to influence the moral order and to give instruction to others? And then, inside of this, there are breaks in terms of kind of the, the clusters of verses. So verses 1 through 9 talks about the sovereignty of God and wealth. And the sovereignty of God is two pieces. When we talk about sovereignty, there's always two pieces. 
There's the authority of God to judge and to order people to do things. Authority, the right to do something. And then there's power, God's ability to do something. So God controls wealth and power. And God has authority over wealth and power. He has the right to give it out as he sees fit. And the right to take it as he sees fit. And he has the ability to do what his right entails. When we get to verse 10 through 16, there's further laying out of the relationship of wealth and moral instruction. And there's significant instruction in terms of the relative duties. And when I mean relative duties, I mean duties as relate to different stations, based upon where you rank and what duty you have to somebody else, based upon how they rank. So let's start to go through. The first chunk, verses 1 through 9. Verse 1 is an introduction to the set. Verses 2, 3, and 4 start to go into God's power over money. And then there's human accountability there. So we have the right, the authority, we have the authority and the power of God. Verses 5 and 6 focus upon educating youth in the way that they should go. And it's the center of the text because it's about the right usage of power and the right usage of resources. And as we get into verses 7, 8, and 9, there's the fact that if you don't train people with your power the way that you should, then be sure that the Lord will punish the rich who are wicked and the poor that are wicked. And so, if you fail to train, you're handing people over to God without the training. And there's a reminder to consider people under your authority as being creatures like yourself. So there's a reminder to humility. Verse 9 concludes that first chunk and encourages us to think about the blessing that comes from using our resources well. So now let's walk through that in more detail. Verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. A lot of the introductions that we've seen in the Proverbs texts have been things that encourage us to get something. It talks about the goodness of getting a reputation or wisdom or the goodness of wealth and how valuable these things are. This one, rather than encouraging us to go after wealth wholeheartedly, this one reminds us that there's something else more valuable. And what's happening is, as we're getting to the close of the 375 Proverbs, there's this sort of sobering effect. There's this this reminder of the comparison of things and the contrasting of things. We've gotten through a lot, and we're coming to the close of the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. And remember, the first collection focused on the youth. It was the first nine chapters. And then we get to chapters 10 through 22 here, the middle of 22. And this is focused upon a man, a young man, a man who's not a boy anymore, not so much the youth as somebody who's engaged in life, who... The expectation here is, okay, fine, you've gone out. You've gone out on your own. You're perhaps a head of household. And you're beginning to deal with things like you're interacting directly with leaders. You're interacting with your own children. 
and you're trying to deal with the burdens of life. And so there's this instruction that's more complex and it continues to deal with the subtleties of things. And so the reminder that money's good, but reputation matters more. Money's good, but reputation matters more. So a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. And that loving favor, that's ambiguous. Loving favor of people. Loving favor of God. Obviously, the favor of God is better than money. And also, the favor of people is better than money. And we've just been reminded of that in the first verse, but this, the, the first part of the verse. But the second part of this couplet reminds us not only of people, but of God. And there's this way in which the social order and the respect that you get for righteousness in the social order is a reminder of God. Why is that? The church is supposed to make judgments that align with God's judgment. We're called in the assembly of the saints to make judgments with the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't make judgments that are our own made-up standards. We are supposed to judge according to the word of God. And when we judge according to the word of God, if there's a judgment that accords with what Christ has revealed, it is Christ's judgment. And so social order and legitimate authority from church officers, civil magistrates, godly parents, all of these things are supposed to remind us of the moral order going to God. And so a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. There are some times when you may have to choose between the two. I remember uh, one of the things that I had, interestingly, when I was first came on to work at Armored Republic when it was owned by uh, Tyler O'Neill, I remember coming in and watching him make a decision that was very much that choice. He made a decision. There was a, there was a product line where there had been a, a supplier that had given some material that was not the best material. There was an issue with it. And so even though there was a very low likelihood of it ever resulting in a problem for any sort of customer, he made the decision, not having insurance or anything to cover the cost, he made a decision to initiate a recall of a product. And in doing that, he did something that was very unlikely to ever be caught by anybody, very unlikely to result in a problem ever. And he chose to initiate that process. And he then delegated the running of that process to me. But I didn't make the call. He made the call. He asked for my advice, but he made the call. And so in the making of that call, I got to watch him choose to do something that cost him a lot of money for the sake of trying to act with integrity there, but also trying to act in such a way as to preserve reputation because the destruction that would occur to a brand and to his own reputation for a failure of a product would be significant. So that was something where I got to observe that in somebody else and cost him a great deal. Now, when you think about the value of reputation, think about the amount of money that multi-billion dollar corporations spend for branding. There's a person over here who makes a living trying to build reputations for people. And so that being the case, that work on branding is just buying reputation. And so here's a case where people are making trades. They're, they're selling money to buy reputation. Good branding, good reputation makes doing business easy. It facilitates the reacquiring of money. 
when you have a good reputation, it allows you to be able to make money more easily. A good reputation generally allows for money to be made more easily. But not always. Sometimes you can do the right thing, and it can cost you a lot of money, and you don't get it back in this life. That is not the general tenor of things. God has structured reality so that generally doing what is good will be a good business practice. But it is not always. And so in sacrificing for righteousness sake, there is an expectation that the Lord will give back a hundredfold the costs of doing righteousness. And some of that, that's in this life and in the next life. How is it in this life if you don't get the money back? It's in this life in the joy that comes from the peace of a good conscience and the way that you can enjoy glorifying God with that. The knowledge that that will result in this life in the glorification of God and in the judgment day when all things are revealed, the glorification of God in the display of his glory in that act. And there will be a reward. He gives rewards to the one who manages five talents well. Five cities were given. There was a great multiplier that occurs there. Good reputation glorifies God and it makes your testimony more credible. When somebody does a good work at cost to themselves, when they tell you something, that is something that makes what they say more credible. Good reputation is a force multiplier for your testimony. The favor of God and man are each better than spending, than having spending money, which is what silver equates to, or having capital, which is what gold equates to. Remember this: when you see silver, you know silver is used for acquiring things. You can, you know, a dime's worth of silver would buy a loaf of bread in almost any age. Um, there's silver, which is used for kind of ordinary trade, and nobody walks around and goes, you know, nobody went to, like, the gas station in, you know, Bethlehem and said, can you break this gold for me? And you go, come on. Like, that's like going with a $1,000 bill to the gas station and trying to buy a Twinkie and then saying, can you give me the change? Right? That's what the result is. So what is gold for? Gold is for major capital expenditures. It's for being able to move wealth easily over long distances. And so when you have gold referenced, think about that in terms of major wealth and think of silver in terms of a more minor amount of wealth. So loving favor is better than spending money to buy things for your consumption and enjoyment. And loving favor is better than capital goods that have an enduring wealth type of value. That's the emphasis. That's the way that this is, is being communicated here. So then, verse 2. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. And the word punished there is more literally they're fined. So economic harm is sort of in, in view there. By humility and the fear of the Lord or riches and honor in life. Okay, so the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. For the rich, there's this general tendency to think, I'm rich, I'm better than you, and therefore, you know, I don't need to care about you. 
That's the problem, this idea of the separation, the pride of wealth. With the poor, there's this tendency to say the rich are the worst, and the rich don't really deserve to be rich, and really I deserve to get their stuff more than they deserve to have their stuff, and so maybe we could use coercive power to redistribute that. Wealth encourages pride. The wealthy can think of themselves as better than the poor. Poverty tends towards a resentment of the rich, and there's a tendency to therefore be tempted to use tyranny or crime to take wealth from the wealthy. We are reminded that we are all creatures. We are all under the law of God. We are all accountable for how we behave with our given stations. If you are poor and you serve the rich, serve well. If you are rich and you rule over the poor, rule well. Verse 3, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are fined. This is the book of Proverbs saying, the world is designed so that there is a stupid tax. The world is designed so that there is a stupid tax. I have paid the stupid tax many times in my life. The wise man sees an evil. He sees harms. And he avoids those harms. The prudent management of risk. The simple continue on without avoiding the harm, the evil. They, as a result, suffer economic loss as a part of the consequences. The paying of the stupid tax is like receiving the blows of a rod on the back. I can remember the times where I have lost money better than I can remember the times where I have made money. Verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. So, verse 3 Verse 2 reminds us of the equality of the rich and the poor under the law of God and his creatures. Verse 3 warns us about wisdom helping us to avoid harms and simplicity or being the gullible, being the simple, resulting in us having fines that we pay. So the point is here that there are economic benefits to wisdom and there's economic harms to not being wise. This isn't just about being a scoffer or being a fool, even being simple, right? the naive. You can lose a lot of money paying the stupid tax with naivete. One of the reasons it's important to incorporate your children into the process of managing the estate is so that they can pay the stupid tax at lower prices. When they have smaller portions of the estate and they make bad decisions with that smaller portion, they learn the lesson in a controlled way rather than having to do it when they are managing the whole of the inherited estate. Those are more expensive and there's not another inheritance to get to fill the coffers. Verse 4 tells us about the positive. So verse 3 warns us about the negative. Verse 4 tells us about the positive. How do you get riches? And what's better than riches, by the way? Honor. How do you get honor? And what's more important than honor, by the way? Life, spiritual life, which is wisdom. 
Right? So here's this triumvirate of glorious things to get. Money, reputation, wisdom, riches, honor, and life. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Right? The simple can become wise by being humble. Acknowledging their own gullibility. Right? Who here enjoys acknowledging that they are naive? What man here goes, yes, I feel more manly acknowledging my naivete. Right? But what man here can honestly say that there are zones where you have no naivete? That there's, you have none. There's none. No naivete at all in you. Right? When we acknowledge it and we seek to learn from others, that humility which acknowledges a superiority in others we would learn from, that allows us to replace our gullibility and to become wise. If we see the relationship between ourselves and others and between God and circumstances and ourselves, if we see all that rightly, if we have humility, then we can come to a fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Right, so this sight of ourselves rightly and our sight of God rightly, it helps us to then get riches and honor and life. Now obviously the beginning of wisdom is the beginning of life, but the idea is if you have life, if you have wisdom, if you have the fear of the Lord, you can grow in the possession of God. Christ came not just to give us life, but to give it to us abundantly. He intends to fill the earth with the knowledge of Him as the waters cover the sea, not just a little bit everywhere, but deep possession. The seas are deep. From the starting point of wisdom, one can increase in wisdom and increase in applying wisdom. It's growing wealth, reputation, and life. Page two. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I replaced the and with even because that and is an explanatory and. It's, a, it's, a, it's saying, train up the child in the way that he should go, and, you know, when he's old, he'll eventually come back to it. No, the idea is, train up a child in the way that he should go, and he won't depart from it even in his old age. That's the idea. This is, this is an emphatic type of thing. Um, so oftentimes you'll hear this cited as talking about people who eventually come back to the faith. And the point here is there's a non-departure. There's a sticking with it. So the education of the youth in the right way, education is an enculturation process. Culture is philosophy externalized. Culture is philosophy externalized. It's, it's the stuff we make out of the philosophy we have. We make artifacts. We make habits. There are shared touch points of knowledge. There are phrases that we can say to each other, and we quickly know what we mean. There are little snippets of the Bible that if I say them, you get an idea quickly. Right? There are things like that. There are movie lines, references to books. Those things are a manifestation of leisure, turned into artifacts. We have extra time. We don't have to spend grinding out the ground to get seeds in there in order to have enough food to get enough calorie content so we don't starve. 
because we have so much wealth, we battle with the waistline getting too big rather than too small. We have so much wealth that we can make it so that we're freezing in the middle of the summer, indoors, in one of the hottest places on earth. Right? These are the kinds of things that we struggle with and from misting. And so when we have to deal with the issue of we have enormous amount of wealth, the question becomes how do we use the wealth in terms of the culture that's passed on? What kind of training do we provide? Do we seek to make the training of children into a thing that is easy and doesn't require anything of us and therefore have a sort of haphazard willingness for anybody to do it? Or do we see the training up of children as an expensive, capital-intensive enterprise where we're seeking to put into the soul great treasures at the cost of great treasures? Now, verse 5 says, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. If your way is covered in thorns and snares, right, this is sort of like saying the way of the perverse has a minefield and jabbing sticks. Right? You go, okay, this is a dangerous path. You have to go very slowly or you go very quickly for a very limited time. This is what happens if the way is filled with these dangers. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. And so there's slow travel or very dangerous travel for the perverse. Why is that? They apparently have not chosen the way very well. Not chosen where they're traveling very well. He who guards his soul will be far from them, far from the thorns and the snares. In other words, the curse, when we look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the curse brings toil, which is fruitless labor, the curse brings strife, right? conflict and difficulty in relationship. The curse brings physical death, the breakdown of the body, pain, separation of the body and spirit. So there's a limited period before we expire here. Thorns are the natural curse of toil, extended to cause pain and death. And snares are strife, extended to cause pain and death. Snares are not a natural occurrence. Snares are people laying traps. So here we have toil, the difficulty of just the thorns of life. And then we have snares, traps laid by other people. that They want to slow down our work. So the perverse magnify natural curse and they magnify strife and curse that comes from that. It's funny, you think about the perversity of the earth-worshipping movement, or the environmentalist movement, and what happens is, as opposed to using land and the earth and natural resources for our good, there's this effort to take nature and make it so that we have to serve it or use it inefficiently. You know, you remember the, the, the big oil spill from British Petroleum in the Gulf a few years ago? One of the reasons that was so large is they were pretty far off the coast. They were pretty far off the coast because we had environmental regulations that made it so that we couldn't drill close to the coast. 
Well, because we couldn't drill close to the, close to the coast, the drilling was very deep. Because it was very deep, it was extremely difficult to get to the point where the drilling occurred. And because it was very difficult to get to the point where the drilling occurred, enormous amounts of oil escaped the point of drilling before it could be shut off. If it were in shallow water, pretty easy to fix. The desire to preserve the earth for the earth and not for man results in making the the earth worse, the earth worse in general, and makes it so that we are not able to make progress as fast. Perverse ideologies, perverse practices, the laziness of perversity, all result in the increase of thorns. And because the perverse do not believe that they themselves are restrained by the law of God and do not believe that government of house, church, or state are restrained by the law of God, the result is that they have an exercise of power, a mere will to power. Who is the one that can impose their will? And in the imposition of the will of man, there becomes a struggle over who can have their preferences over the other. In the church context, this can manifest itself in terms of preferences in the worship wars. How ought we to worship God? Better, how do I want to worship God? And you can go along with that. If we're careful to worship God according to the way that he has appointed, we can avoid the strife of that and say, what can we prove that we ought to do from the word of God? With the state, when we say, how should we use coercive power? We can say, what should we do that we can prove from the word of God about coercive power? What things are actually criminal? What are the limits of taxation? Is it true that 1 Samuel 8 says, that 10% tax is a curse and beyond the authority of man, that it's a sort of tithing, a claim to be God. So these types of things, the perverse create snares for each other, and they create thorns, and it manifests itself in myriad ways. But he who guards his soul, he will exercise dominion over nature and have garden cities the thorns will be removed. He who guards his soul will avoid seeking to exercise tyranny over his neighbor and will avoid snares and traps and the struggle for power and instead will find either that he can work well with godly power above him or exercise godly power himself so as to create peace. And that manifests itself now in verse 6. Verse 6 is the type of exercise of power that helps to avoid traps. It helps to avoid strife. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you train with doctrine, rebuke, correct, sorry, correction and discipline in the word of God. If you train a child in the word of God, then that child will continue in the way of righteousness even into old age. And there is no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth. 
This process is costly and it is hard, but it is worth it. And this cannot be compromised on. If we want to see dominion and discipleship extend, the next generation is the most efficient investment. Mr. Marsh and I were talking earlier about the religious power, the affectional power of things from your childhood. And this idea that there are things that I can remember from my childhood that my affections were trained around that I still struggle with that I think are now forbidden in the law of God. There are things, there are songs, there are, there are things that are powerful there. And we can spare our children from that at much lower cost than we can remove wicked affections from ourselves. And so even though it is costly, it is far more efficient than anything else across time in terms of the rate of return that it yields. Now, if you're an adult, or you plan to be an adult, I would like to encourage you to read J.C. Ryle's Duties of Parents. It is an excellent book that takes this specific proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. And it takes that, it's a little booklet, it's a short audio book, takes that and expands on it and talks about the way to discipline the young, and to try to develop the duties of parents. It's excellent. Verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. So here, this continues about the exercise of power. If you're rich, you rule over the poor. And this is simply a reality. The rich hire the poor to work. This hiring is the creation of a servant-master relationship. The one with the money determines the work to be done and hires somebody to do it. The one who accepts the hire agreement agrees to serve the one who pays. That's the exchange. Now, when we think about the next line, and the borrower is the servant to the lender, how many of you have had that uh, quoted back to you to tell you that you should never borrow? Have you heard that? You heard, let me say, you know, you shouldn't borrow because that will make you the servant to the lender. Okay, you should never work for anybody for money because then you will serve them. Does that follow? Which one's a more direct type of servitude? When someone employs you, do they exercise more control over your moment-by-moment behaviors? Or do banks that give you a credit card exercise more control over your moment-by-moment behavior? The, The question is, are you using the debt wisely? Borrowing is a force multiplier. You make a bad decision and you borrow to pay for it, it is a worse decision. You make a good decision and you borrow in order to accomplish it, it can magnify the profitability of that decision. The greater degree to which you apply a force multiplier there, the greater degree to which you ought to have certainty about the wisdom of your choice. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. So in other words, the lender rules over the borrower. 
The one with the money determines the work quantity. And in the case of being hired, the quantity, because you have to make the money back to pay it back. In the case of the hiring, they not only determine the quantity, but they also determine the specific things to be done. That's the exchange. So in a less direct way, if you borrow money and agree to pay it back, then you agree to work to be able to repay the amount at risk of the loss of your security or, under biblical law, the loss of your freedom. You have to do forced labor. And, you know, if you don't, if you have a debt and so you don't pay it back and then somebody starts to take you to court and they start to extract the money out of a bank account through automatic withdrawals because the court is allowed for it, then there's a certain degree to which you've lost that freedom there and you have to keep working to get that paid back. Wage labor is a more direct control of service than debt. Debt holders tend to allow you to do what you want as long as you can pay income high enough you can make income high enough and pay the debt on schedule. Dominion is increased as wealth is increased and Christian rule increases as Christians learn to build up capital and to be able to hire people to do godly work. It is not a dishonorable or wicked thing to be a servant. We are all servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless, of course, you're a servant to sin, that's a less honorable service. We are all slaves of Christ. If there are intermediary authorities between you in some relationship, then the way you serve Christ there is by serving that authority well. Serving that authority well honors God. One of the things that's lacking in terms of the manhood of America is the unwillingness of the young to put their strength to serve under the command of someone older and wiser and to be able to learn in that context. There are many lessons that I learned the stupid tax way as opposed to listening to my father. I wished I had done what he told me, served better. Verse 8. He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow and the rod of his anger will fail. So this is about now the, the power, right? If you, you reap what you sow, if you sow iniquity, you will reap the fruit of that. Trouble. Sorrow. And so... If you have power, if you are rich, if you are in a position of authority in the state or church, and you sow iniquity, you will reap greater trouble. There's that magnification. Power increases the effect of that. And one way that that happens is in relationships with the application of discipline. What tends to happen is not just a total lack of discipline, what happens is, when discipline is not applied diligently, it gets applied inconsistently and disproportionately. If you use the rod in anger, 
rather than with judicious restraint and enduring consistency for the good of the one under authority, then the rod itself will fail. You know what it yields rather than obedience and discipline? It yields rebellion. The rod of anger fails to do what the purpose of the rod is. Verse 9. He who has a good eye, that's the literal wording, a good eye, will be blessed. For he gives of his bread to the poor. So you can see why generous would be put in there. It's a more specific type of good. Having a good eye is having an eye that sees clearly. What's the function of an eye? It's to see, to see clearly, right? Having a good eye, this is talking about the inward eye. This is the eye of the mind. Having a good eye is having an eye that sees clearly. And also, it looks upon others with good. It looks upon others with love. It looks upon others seeking their good. If you look around and you just hate everybody you see, which is the temptation of everybody who's fallen. If you look at others and hate, that's going to obscure your knowledge of God. Hating your brother, who is the image of God, is going to manifest itself in you distorting also your understanding of God. It's a lack of humility. Why do we hate each other? Because of each other's weaknesses. Not like me. I don't have weaknesses. Your weaknesses are intolerable. And that's the general tendency. We, we look at other people's weaknesses and we hate them. And we fail to see our own weaknesses. We look at other people and don't want to forgive, though we have been forgiven more. So when you are quick to forgive, that's one of the things that helps you to see more clearly. He who has a generous eye will be blessed. Right? So looking upon others generously, looking upon others and seeking their good is something that results in blessing. There's a reciprocity principle here. You see the reciprocity principle being applied over and over again in this text? And there's the multipliers of when you do that with wealth and power. For he who gives of his bread, for he gives his bread to the poor. If you give your bread to the poor, that suggests that you are seeking their good that suggests that you are thinking clearly because here's the decision you're making. I'm going to give up present wealth to lend it to God and God pays excellent rates of return. The interest he pays, he pays is amazing. And so I'm going to invest here and I'm going to get an incredible return. That is clear-sightedness. That is clear thinking. That is the eye thinking or looking clearly. And remember, like I said, every time we go through these, are all of these things about generosity to the poor to stand alone? No. If you don't work, you don't eat. All of the things about worthy recipients, all of those things, we put them all together, we look at the coherent set of scripture that teaches us about how do we deal with charity. But don't use that as an excuse to never be charitable. Look hard for opportunities for worthy giving And when you give, give in the name of Christ. So that he gets the glory. Loving others is costly. But its yields are a wonderful return. It it brings great blessing. 
Generosity is an investment. It is a lending to the Lord. The Lord pays amazing returns of interest. And C, charity starts at home. If you want to be charitable outside of the home, stop for a second and think, am I doing my duties at home? Is this time that I actually need to go spend on some duty I have at home? Is this some money that I need to put into something that there's a need to fulfill with the people having a more immediate responsibility to? Charity starts at home. And charity down abroad, when there are duties at home, is theft. You steal from the people you have a duty to. So, next chunk of text. Starting at verse 10. Wealth and moral instruction here. Cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. This is the introduction to this section. It teaches about the king's friends. And remember, whenever you see king in proverb, think any authority. Right? Whether we're talking about a boss, parents, a civil authority, a church authority, the idea here is a person in authority. A king is sort of the maximal version of that in human form. Verse 12, The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he who overthrows the words of the faithful but he overthrows the words of the faithless. The lazy man says, there's a lion outside, I shall be slain in the streets. The mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. Right? This is the way that God deals with truth and treachery in providence. This is how he brings the results about. This is what he does to change the ends. The, the intended things that people do is not the same as what God does with treachery. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Verse 10. To cast out the scoffer and contention will leave, yet strife and reproach will cease. This is a proverb about the priestly work of people in authority. Priests are responsible for holiness. So the priestly work here they guard the relational spheres. They defend the holy. They cast out the profane. If you have a scoffer in your sphere of authority who will not heed teaching, correction, rebuke, and discipline, then save the institution by casting out the scoffer. Think about this with criminals who commit capital crimes. We remove them from the civil sphere by execution. That's what the Bible teaches. There are crimes that deserve that. God has commanded it. In the church, an unrepentant scoffer is to be excommunicated. That spares the church. Now, both of those require due process. In the household, divorce and disinheritance both apply in some circumstances. When there is ongoing behavior, it will not respond to teaching, correction, rebuke, discipline. Again, due process must be due process must be applied. You have to give opportunity for repentance and restitution. If the case is clear and there's no repentance, then cast out the scoffer. This will put an end to the curse of strife 
and an end to the curse of the reproach of shame and toil that have come upon that institution. Verse 11, He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. So verse 10 is about what can you do to lose all of the benefits and blessing of an institution, a covenant institution. Verse 11 is about how you get the benefits of a covenant institution. Purity of heart, in other words, integrity, manifests itself in good works and, and good words and the seeking of wisdom. That includes seeking of wisdom from the authority, asking questions, asking good questions, trying to learn from the answers and making progress. If you've had the experience of teaching anybody, you know there's a big difference between having to teach somebody the same thing over and over again versus teaching somebody, having them make progress, and having them ask new questions and being able to teach them the next thing. Whether you've been training somebody at work, whether you've been dealing with children, whether you've been dealing with people who are potentially going to take on some additional responsibility or authority and you're preparing them, when you see people make progress, there's a great joy in teaching. And the purity of the heart manifests itself in the progress of learning to a large extent. Then there is the grace of the lips. The grace of the lips, this is priestly work for the one who's under authority. right? The pure heart and the grace of the lips. This is how you nurture relationship with the lawful authority by good service, integrity, humility, words of honor. You who are in authority, be sure to reward the honorable. Give them words of praise, gifts of resources to manage, an increasing presence of your own time with positive countenance. I would encourage anybody who is under authority to remember the idea of purity of heart and grace on the lips as the tools to be able to increase your relationship in a positive way with the one who is over you. And those who are in authority to be careful to look for those things. Verse 12. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the faithless. God governs history so that the truth becomes known over time. He will fill the earth with the knowledge of him as the waters cover the sea. God will remove the faithless from power. He overthrows the words of the faithless. Here are two examples. The lazy man. If you've ever managed people, there's a frustration of excuses that you get from people that you manage. And some of the excuses sound a little bit like, I would have, but there was a lion. If I go outside, I will be eaten. God causes the lazy to have to come up with more and more elaborate excuses. When we talked about this two weeks ago, there was this problem. What happened since then? Well, this time, the lion ate my motherboard, so I couldn't turn on my computer, and I forgot to tell anybody for two weeks. 
the lazy man's excuses start to destroy themselves. They become more and more absurd. God will not allow lazy, lying, excuse-making to stand. The immoral woman makes covenant breakers. The immoral woman is a trap. She's a deep pit. And he who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. Harlots flatter. They say lusty things. They use their mouths in seductive ways like kissing and sexual acts outside of marriage. God uses the seductress to trap the wicked and to keep them from power and honor. How many evil men are you aware of who have lost power or influence because they fell into this pit? The hypocrisy, an oath-breaking that comes. These men were trapped there. And these women believed they were setting a trap to try to get something they wanted out of this man. And it was a trap for themselves. They are not happy. God uses sin in this way in relation to every commandment. He uses every type of sin to trap itself. There are inherent consequences and self-destructive tendencies in all sin. Sin is irrational. The law teaches us how to govern ourselves to advance our own position. It is for our good. The law is an instruction manual for dominion. As we apply the law, we will increasingly, generally, increase our dominion over the flesh, over the world, and the devil. Verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. We were told above that the rod of anger will fail. The rod used judiciously and consistently for correction with due process drives foolishness from the heart of the child. You just beat a child, don't explain anything to them, not going to drive foolishness. You teach the child, you give them due process, you ask them to explain themselves, you give them the opportunity, you show them why they're still wrong, you convict them out of the scriptures, you show them why what they've done is wrong and what they ought to do in the future, you explain to them that you're doing this because you love them and you're trying to help them to do what is right. You restore the relationship after this quick administration of a moderate use of the rod. That done consistently, repeatedly, drives foolishness far from the child. He who oppresses the poor increases he who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. The poor are easy to oppress. They don't have the resources to resist. So you can extract things out of them more easily. One of the practices of the IRS is to go after people who have enough wages to have some money to take, but not enough to be able to pay attorneys, to be able to fight them. And so people who make in the middling range of fifty to around $150,000 a year are excellent targets for the IRS, and that is where the money comes from, from the squeezing. That is an oppression that is meant to maximize the money from the squeeze. 
oppressing the poor to increase riches will result in poverty. This is another example of God providentially governing things so that when you sin, you don't get what you want. He who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. You know, when you give things to people, you're either doing it because you really care for them and you want to help them, or you're doing it because you want to get something out of them. The people who have things to get things out of are the rich. And if you give to the rich to get their favor and to try to get them to do something for you, God is saying, it's not going to work. You will not get rich from that. Now we think about this and we go, well, bribing, right? I could bribe somebody who's powerful and rich in order to get what I need. God is saying he's going to providentially use this to not bring about the results. He's going to frustrate the desire of the wicked. Instead, we should be generous to those who are in need. We should give in order to seek to bless each other. That is the thing that is going to generate good returns. That is what we have been promised. And so we ought to be willing to associate with the lowly. We ought to be willing to bless each other. We ought to be willing to see a need and to fulfill it. To try to bless each other. To recognize each other's weaknesses. And so the desire to help each other in our weaknesses so that we can work together more effectively to glorify together the God of heaven. That is the way that leads to the enjoyment of the rich blessings of God. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Thought-provoking as usual. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause your word to build us up, that you would reform our souls, that you would renew our inward man, that you would cause us to do what you have taught in your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.